And now, the Blaze Radio Network presents 40 Acres and a Fool. Here's your host, Cam Edwards. Greetings from the near frontier. Thank you for tuning in to another edition of 40 Acres and a Fool here on Blaze Podcast Network. Uh, And it is another special edition of 40 Acres and a Fool, another past tense current events, taking a look at an old book that has something to teach us today. Uh, And we started this last week, actually, with uh, Reflections on the Failures of Socialism, which came out in 1955. So uh, about a year after the uh, uh, McCarthy bubble had kind of burst, the, uh, the the career of Joe McCarthy and McCarthyism and red baiting uh, had sort of come to uh, his career anyway had sort of crashed uh, in 1954 uh, during the uh, what's called the Army McCarthy hearings and uh, 1955. Uh, you know the the conventional wisdom among many Americans is that well maybe we went a little too far in uh, going after these communists and. Uh, and meanwhile, you know, the uh, folks on the far left were saying, well, we weren't we weren't really communists anyway. We're just socialists. That's what we are. We're, you know, just good hearted folk just want to take care of people. That's we're not we're not commies. We're not like the Soviet Union. Um, it, there was a, a line by uh, John Chamberlain, uh, who was one of the early writers for National Review and a, a longtime journalist. And he, uh, he said socialism is communism with its claws retracted. Uh, and I think it was sort of in that spirit that Max Eastman wrote this book, Reflections on the Failures of Socialism. Now, Max Eastman was one of the founders of the socialist uh, movement in the uh, late 19th century and early 20th century. He was a very bohemian, uh, a freewheeling, free-loving kind of guy in, uh, in in New York City in his 20s. Very, very educated, a, a college professor at a pretty early age. He was uh, uh, the editor of the Marxist journal uh, The Masses, which was never a huge magazine in terms of the publication uh, and circulation size, but it was a hugely important uh, magazine, and it was very influential uh, uh, on those among the left. And Max Eastman was one of those who uh, eventually recognized that um, socialism is another word for utopianism uh, in, in many regards. And unfortunately, that's in theory. In reality, socialism is another word for totalitarianism. So he writes this book. It's a collection of his essays, uh, as well as some original writing. Uh, and it's collected and published by the uh, Devon Adair Company in 1955, Reflections on the Failure of Socialism. So last time around, we talked about the first couple of chapters where he, he really focuses on the, the ills and the flaws, the fatal flaws of socialism. And in chapter three and moving forward, he starts to uh, uh, compare socialism to uh, the ideals of uh, other systems and and you'll see as we get into this, or you'll hear as we get into this, that uh, Max Eastman, although he had left uh, the left, he was not exactly at, at home uh, on the right either. He had his own rather uh, uh, idiosyncratic views on uh, where we should be going. So chapter three, The Real Guarantee of Freedom, he says one of the unconscious mistakes of socialists was to imagine that there is a beatific end or any end at all to human history. In the utopians, this was excusable, for they were naively setting out to build an earthly paradise for man, and the idea could hardly occur to them that once it was built, there was anything to do but live in it. 
When Marx breezed in, however, with his great brag of being realistic and hard-headed, telling us that ideals were unnecessary, the material universe is going upward eternally, and the next stage after capitalism is bound to be socialism, it does seem odd that nobody asked, well, what comes after socialism? Which, you know, I never really thought of until I read that passage, but it's absolutely true. I mean, if we are progressing... Uh, out of capitalism. And, uh, you know, uh, again, many on the left believe that we are in late stage capitalism right now. So if we're progressing out uh, and we're supposedly progressing to socialism, well, as we go onward and upward forevermore, um, what does come after socialism? I mean, I, I think the uh, the honest answer is <laughs> uh, a return to capitalism. I think that's that's generally what history has shown. After a uh, period of misery, when socialism collapses, um, so that's one mistake he says that the socialists made um, by uh, imagining that that we are progressing towards an end to history rather than living through uh, history, and that we're there, there, there's no you know permanent end unless we cause it or create it by blowing ourselves up. He says another mistake of the socialists was to imagine that there might be brotherly peace in a free society, a settlement that is of all head-on conflicts of interest, all caste and class struggles. That might happen in heaven, but on earth men will always divide into groups with conflicting interests. As civilization advances, they will divide into more groups perhaps, but not less keenly opposed. The task of the social idealist is not to suppress these groupings or to try to reconcile them, but to keep them in a state of equilibrium. Never to let any one get out of hand. Our liberties depend upon the success of this effort. Only where every powerful group needs freedom for itself in order to compete with others can society as a whole be free. Freedom is the name of the arena in which various social forces contend. So uh, that's a definition of freedom that uh, we don't necessarily uh, uh, think of, but it, it does make sense. Uh, and we can see in many aspects of our society um, how illiberal uh, some of these supposed liberal forces are once they get power. Freedom of speech has become much less important to the left uh, over the uh, last generation, right? Um, the, the right to keep and bear arms uh, has perhaps never been particularly important on the left, but it has become uh, less so uh, indeed. As a matter of fact, I mean, you go back 100 years and there were in, in what was then a much more, quote unquote, conservative society, uh, it was the left appealing to the ideals of the Constitution in order for them to carve out a space for their views. Now that they are ascendant uh, in, uh, in many regards, those ideals can be cast away, uh, and so can their opposition, presumably. So uh, what Eastman talks about, again, is, is, is the, the, the Constitution, I think, and the, uh, the constitutional aspect of keeping uh, these forces uh, in check. Uh, he writes as well, and he kind of gets into uh, a few pages of pretty heavy Marxism that, I'll be honest with you, Marxism is one of those subjects where you start reading it and you're reading about the dialectic. And I just can't get really interested in it. And if I can't get really interested in it, I doubt that I'm going to convince you 
to get really interested in it. So I'm going to skip past all of the, you know, uh, really doctrinaire Marxism talk and, and, and go back to this idea uh, that Max Eastman brought up uh, about history not moving towards some, uh, you know, a predetermined summit. He says, to a mind that is aware that history is not an escalator and that no one knows where the objective facts are leading, flexibility is inculcated by the mere fact of change. It requires no metaphysical hocus-pocus like dialectics to justify it. And it is attainable to a degree that Lenin, with his fixed faith in a millennium to be reached by, quote, resolving the contradictions in capitalism, uh, never imagined. Uh, He says, I can see no course open to the disillusioned Marxist who remains loyal to his original ideas, but to attain that genuinely scientific flexibility. In other words, if the evidence is all around you, supposedly Marxism is scientific, right? It's science. Well, if the evidence is all around you, that your experiment's a failure, don't you at least have to be flexible enough in the name of science uh, to acknowledge that, uh, that it's been a failure? And of course, we then learn that Marxism is really not all that scientific, that uh, human nature still prevails. Right. Um, Max Eastman says, uh, speaking again of the need for this equilibrium and why it's so important, he says the state occupies a special position in society because it has a monopoly of armed force, but that only makes it more vital that it should not be sacrosanct. So, in other words, this equilibrium doesn't just apply to various uh, uh, layers of government or the executive branch versus the judicial branch versus the legislative branch. But it actually applies to the place uh, for government in, in society as a whole. He says, not only must the power of the government be limited by law if the citizens are to be free, but it must also be limited by other powers. It must be regarded as but one of those social forces upon whose equilibrium a free society depends. Now, you might think, uh, I certainly do, that, that if that is the case, um, then we're really out of whack because the government is not really seen as just one of those social forces uh, upon whose equilibrium a free society depends. It is seen as the linchpin, right? The first thing we do, many of us anyway, when there is a, a problem or a concern, what's the government going to do about it? That's the, that's the first question we ask. Not what are we going to do about it, but what's the government going to do about it? As it turns out, Max Eastman felt like even in the 1950s, um, this equilibrium was out of whack. And, and he felt like it had been that way for a couple of decades. It says the last 40 years of American history, so this 1955, so he's talking about back to 1915. He said the last 40 years of American history provide an excellent example of the manner in which developing facts demand flexibility in the fighter for freedom. During 20 of those years, he says, the fight was against something which may, for the purpose of convenience, be called Wall Street or big business. Nobody, he says, who engaged in the struggle to unionize the steel workers or in the strike against the Rockefeller interests centering in Trinidad, Colorado, where the uh, Colorado National Guard opened fire on uh, striking miners, or who backed the Industrial Relations Commission of 1913 to 1915, or the congressional investigation that called old J.P. Morgan on the carpet, None of those people who did those things need feel that his efforts were wasted. They were directed against the main enemy of freedom. But that enemy, he says, has been defeated. And that battle won. 
Around 1930, the United States government began telling the financiers and the captains of industry, instead of asking them what to do. So, again, um, Max Eastman was not a guy who was born on the right. He was a guy who found his way to the right. And obviously, uh, I, I think uh, Max Eastman, as anybody would want to do, would, would want to minimize uh, the points at which he may ever have been wrong. Right. And so, of course, you know, during those time periods, I, I, we, we were on the right side of history because that was the, the biggest threat uh, was uh, was big industry. And the thing is, um, the, one of the things that I like about this perspective of Max Eastman that, uh, you know, threats can change over time is that, A, I, I think he's right. Uh, but B, it also allows us to, I think, look back at history with a bit more uh, reflection. Uh, and you can look and you can see, you know, you can be a fan of capitalism and, and you can see uh, corporations uh, uh, treating employees pretty crummy, right? You can, I think we can look in 2018 and say, hey, you know what? Uh, I'm glad we have a five-day work week. Hey, I'm glad that we don't have, uh, uh, you know, 11-year-olds working in factories anymore. Um, th- those are those are successes, and we can celebrate those things as successes. It doesn't necessarily mean that um, uh, that 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 today uh, big business is the uh, the biggest problem that we face. I would actually argue that today the biggest problem that we face is big, and by the biggest problem we face, I mean maybe the biggest threat to our individual freedom uh, is big. The, the power of big government and, uh, uh, in many cases, big business, certainly big tech, uh, to, uh, to team up <laughs> against the uh, individual, the little guy. Uh, and, and if your primary concern is individual liberty and individual freedom, uh, then you are talking about the little guy, uh, a lot of little guys and gals around the country. And, uh, and maybe it is uh, to be expected then that, that, that uh, entities that get too big uh, are going to be a concern. Socialism, of course, uh, amounts to the biggest entity of all. It amounts to uh, state control and state planning over the economy and uh, typically uh, society as well. So anyway, Max Eastman says, going back to the 1930s, uh, that's when the relationship changed and uh, big business became less of a, a threat to individual liberty than big government. Um he talks about a guy named Stuart Chase. He was Stuart Chase was actually the guy that came up with the phrase New Deal. He wrote a book in 1932, I think it was, 1931, called uh, A New Deal. And it generally laid out a, a great expansion uh, of the federal government uh, during the Great Depression as a, a means of solving uh, the Great Depression. And Stuart Chase looked towards the Soviet Union. Uh, he, he at one time said, why should the Soviet Union have all of the fun of remaking the world? Um, never let a crisis go to waste, right? So even though this was, you know, a, a huge depression, uh, well, we can we can take advantage of this. and We can build our way towards a utopia. Uh, Roosevelt loved the idea, or the, the, at least the phrasing of uh, the New Deal. He ended up adopting this. Stuart Chase goes on to uh, have a career as an economist. Um, and as uh, Max Eastman wrote in 1955, Stuart Chase back in 1942 said, quote, big business, which dominated the official government, both federal and local in the 1920s, has since the Depression retired to the sidelines and in some cases to the doghouse. Uh, Max Eastman says these lines 
besides describing facts without too much exaggeration, uh, expressed a general conviction among what Chase calls socialist liberals. In other words, the, 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 the conventional wisdom among, you know, the, the left, uh, or at least the socialist left, was that, yeah, big business had been put in its place. Eastman says neither Chase nor his pals, the socialist liberals, actually realized what this meant or should mean to those interested in a free society. Because if at that point you've acknowledged, ha, ah, big business is now subservient to the government, you don't find a way to, to, to keep your boot on big business's neck and grind it into the ground a little bit further. At that point you realize, okay, now we need to start keeping an eye on big government. Uh, Max Eastman says, instead of seeing and defining the new menace of overgrown power, ensconced now in Washington, not Wall Street, they went right on fighting the defeated enemy and boosting the victorious power. Uh, he then quotes uh, a chase once more in a uh, I, just a quote that kind of smacks a little bit of uh, support for totalitarianism. Quote, the American community must submit to government and discipline if it's going to survive. There is no path to the 19th century and the old frontier. In war and peace, we must have a strong government, a strong executive arm. As a people, we had better start tomorrow morning identifying the federal government at Washington with ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't think we did that. Uh, even today, uh, when you've got the resurgence in the uh, idea of socialism, I, I don't think that we're necessarily identifying with those in Washington. Maybe the shutdown, you know, the left is going to start identifying more with uh, uh, the federal government uh, than ourselves. But I think by and large, the American people have failed to do what uh, Mr. Chase thought was so necessary. Uh, Max Eastman, though, uh, does note we again, have gone out of equilibrium in, in some regards. He says the best of the, quote, socialist liberals are leading us in the direction of the slave state only because they have the idea of a fixed destination and they don't know where else to find it. But nothing is fixed. There is no destination. The task is to keep pace with history. The ideal is not peace, but balanced conflict. Detached idealists of freedom should regard themselves as a mobile force in defense of the social equilibrium. Their aim at all times should be to prevent the domination of society by any one organized idea or power. Uh, and that is how Chapter 3, The Real Guarantee of Freedom, concludes. So I, I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. Uh, and our email address is 40acrefool at gmail.com. Again, I find it really hard to call that last paragraph a uh, an example of of conservative thought, even for the mid nineteen fifties. But then I, I, I think about what 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 that equilibrium actually looks like in the real world, and it does not. It, it all of a sudden does sort of take the shape of uh, small c conservatism, um, where you recognize that that change is inevitable. Uh, but you also recognize that rushing headlong uh, into the unknown is incredibly unwise. And so rather than uh, any one group or any one ideology uh, rushing off to, uh, to, to take the lead uh, and uh, shut out other voices and other opinions, uh, again, you, you, you want to have that, that public sphere uh, 
where all of those voices uh, need those other voices to be able to sound off in order for them to be able to be heard as well. And I think, again, that's probably the place where we are most out of whack right now is we've, we're actively trying to shut each other up. Uh, and it's almost this uh, game of musical chairs. I, well, you know, I, I take that back. I don't want to – I am not afraid to uh, put the onus on conservatives or on the right when needed. But in all honesty, uh, it is primarily the left that is trying to shut up the political opposition. And they're not doing it again through uh, necessarily the powers of government, but through the levers of culture uh, and technology. Uh, but they are certainly no fans of free expression. You, you can argue, again, whether or not they are uh, ardent opponents of the First Amendment. Uh, but I think it's very fair to say that we are seeing more and more individuals who make their living uh, by speaking into a microphone, by sharing their thoughts, or by sharing the thoughts of others, if they are actors or, or musicians who sing songs that somebody else wrote. But that's, what they, that's how they make their living, is by expression, and by the freedom of expression, and yet they are trying to take that away from those they disagree with. I, 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 I know that you can find some examples on the right, but I, because of the cultural power of the left, uh, I think that we are seeing far more of that uh, come from the left these days than from the right. That's one area, again, of equilibrium where we, uh, it'd be great if we could actually start to find some, right? All right, so... I think we've got one more chapter of uh, this book, Reflections on the Failure of Socialism, that that I want to do next week sometime. And then I think we'll probably be able to move on from Max Eastman. Uh, Chapter four of this book, what we'll be talking about uh, next week, uh, it's it's interesting. Uh, Replacement for the dream we lost. So if you were a disillusioned socialist... Why were you a socialist to begin with? What, what what happened when you were illusioned, before you were disillusioned? And Max Eastman notes that a lot of these folks weren't evil. They weren't they weren't trying to set up, you know, a gulag in Kansas or anything like that. They they were they had the best of intentions. They were trying to create heaven on earth. They were trying to create a a society without want, uh, where everybody could uh, get all that they needed uh, and. Again, you could have peace and harmony and love. So what happens when you realize that that dream is simply a dream, that it's not going to happen and it's not going to happen with socialism? Is there another ideal to aspire to? Uh, Is there another way? And in uh, the next uh, edition of uh, Past Tense, Current Events, we'll talk about one way. Again, it's not really the traditional conservative way. It's maybe not even the traditional capitalist way. But it's also not the socialist way of moving forward. Uh, That's on the next edition of Past Tense Current Events sub-podcast of 40 Acres of Football. This gets confusing, doesn't it? Anyway, uh, we'll talk about that next week. Thank you so much for listening to this special bonus book edition of 40 Acres and a Fool. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Be safe. Have fun. Live a little, learn a lot. And thanks for listening here on Blaze Podcast Network. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network.